why I think with age, we tend to see this increase in what we call comorbidities. More and more cells can actually transition to this senescent state at a faster rate in people who might be aging faster. Traits like longevity tend to have lots and lots and lots of genes that are all acting simultaneously. So how do we target those pathways? These supercentenarians tend to have kind of won the genetic lottery. So they have kind of the perfect permutation of genetic variants. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, I am so excited about today's episode. I was hearing Morgan Levine on all of the podcasts. She is such a well-respected figure in the world of longevity science. I knew I had to book her. And then when her people reached out to me about coming on the show, it was just an automatic yes. This interview turned out to be everything I could want and more. We dive so deep into so many topics, like the difference between your biological and chronological age and what affects that, how we can actually reset our cells to a younger state, even things like plasma and blood transfusions. You do not want to miss this episode, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Morgan Levine. That's M-O-R-G-A-N-L-E-V-I-N-E. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, find the Friday announcement post there, and again, comment to enter to win something that I love. And that something that I love just might be some amazing skincare and beauty products to help support healthy aging. If you're enjoying this show, it would mean the absolute world, world, world. If you could take a brief moment and subscribe and or write an iTunes review and subscribe and or write an Apple podcast review, it helps so much more than most people realize. So thank you so much in advance for that. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. 
So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, it may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque, it can help alleviate pain, and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys if you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin so you can truly feel good about what you put on and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, 
and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code cleanforall20 to get 20% off site-wide. You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Morgan Levine. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so, so thrilled about the conversation that I am about to have. So little backstory on everything. We discuss a lot of health-related topics on this show, but as you guys know, my obsession is longevity and anti-aging and all of the diet, lifestyle, genetic, environmental factors that go into that. So some of my favorite episodes I've had on this show have been surrounding that and have been with guests who actually work with today's guests. So you guys might have heard my episodes with David Sinclair and Dr. Walter Longo. And recently, a new book came out called True Age, Cutting Edge Research to Help Turn Back the Clock. The book came on my radar. I knew I had to read it. I knew I had to interview the author. And then the author's probably publicist or agent or publisher or somebody reached out and connected us. So I was so, so thrilled to have the guest on the show. I got the book. I read it. It was everything I am obsessed with. And I know you guys are as well. It dives deep, deep, deep into the concept of aging, the difference between chronological and biological age, all of the factors that go into that and the concept of actually measuring it, as well as very approachable diet and lifestyle factors that affect it. So we will dive deep into all of that. But I am here with Dr. Morgan Levine. She is the Assistant Professor of Pathology at Yale University School of Medicine, and again, the author of this new book, True Age, and she's been everywhere. I had actually seen her work back in 2020 on the Goop series on Netflix that had Dr. Walter Longo in it, and they actually used some of her work in that, so that was super cool. She's also been on CNN and The Guardian and Time and BBC and everywhere. And you guys have probably heard her because she's been on a lot of podcasts related to these topics. So that's why I'm so excited. Dr. Levine, thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you for having me, Melanie. I'm excited to be here. And so, okay, I hope you don't think this is super strange. I do follow you on Instagram and you posted a while back about how your dad was an actor. And then you mentioned it in your book as well. And the post you had posted, so I'm a huge Star Trek fan. So the post you posted was about one of the episodes he was in. So I actually watched that last night in honor of this interview today. I'm obsessed with the original series. So I was like, I should watch this as like a little get ready for tomorrow. So your dad was awesome, by the way. Thank you. I mean, he's only in that episode, I think, for the tiniest amount of time. And I haven't seen it in forever. But yeah, it's it is exciting. He had the honor of getting the Vulcan, like Spock took him out with his Vulcan like pinch thing. So that is the honor of all honors. So in any case, I'm thrilled to be here with you today. There's so much I want to ask you about, but I am curious about your personal story, which you do talk about in True Age, which is super amazing. But what got you interested in longevity? Were you always interested in it? Did you have an epiphany one day? I mean, what led you to where you are today? I mean, I know you do a lot with data and programming and all of that stuff. So what's your story? Yeah. So, you know, speaking of my dad, I think if I really had to think back and come up with when did I actually start getting interest in this field, it's probably at a really early age. I don't remember the exact kind of moment, but My father was in his mid-50s when I was born, so I was very aware from a young age that there was an aging process and people do grow older and lose some of kind of the functional abilities that they had and are more at risk of disease and ultimately more at risk of death. So I was very concerned about, you know, my parents' aging process and potential mortality But it probably wasn't until I I think I was a senior in undergrad that I actually discovered there was a whole science around this. And I was very interested in health. I thought, you know, I started pre-med in undergrad and thought I was going to do something in kind of the health sphere and then really stumbled upon this and everything kind of fell into place from there. And I kind of devoted all of my training and interest to trying to understand the aging process and figure out if there is actually any way to intervene in it. I love it. And I have so many questions. Okay. So I guess stepping back a really broad general question, but it must be asked. And it's just the question of why do we age? And in particular, because you talk about in the book about how aging appears in different species and how different species have different rates of aging and like the honeybee, it's different by gender. And then, you know, we have jellyfish that are potentially immortal. And then last night I was looking through PubMed and a lot, all of your, well, not all, you have so many studies, but a lot of your research and one of your recent ones was on the naked mole rat and how it doesn't even display, I guess, externally signs of aging, which kind of blew my mind, not compared to epigenetically, because that's what you're talking about. But in any case, and then there's humans. So why do we age and why is it different between species? Yeah. So I think the actual question is, why do we not age faster? So I think, you know, people can think in a a non-living system. So think of a car or a building. We know what happens with time, right? There's deterioration. You have these things that are beautifully, intricately designed, go from order to disorder. And this is kind of the whole concept around the second law of thermodynamics and entropy. 
But the amazing thing about living systems, which humans are, or all these other animals are, is that we actually can, for so, to some degree, slow that decline and slow that dysregulation. And I think the difference between different species is the degree to which that dysregulation is actually opposed. And this probably comes down to some evolutionary selection. So certain species, in order to continue and have high fitness, they had to slow that down for longer to actually be able to reproduce and have offspring that can reach fecundity. And other species that maybe live in a more predatory environment, they reproduce really quickly, have lots of offspring. They don't need to have this really prolonged lifespan. And their their kind of fitness gamble is just, you know, live fast, die young. Like the jellyfish that are potentially, quote, immortal, are they reproducing? Yeah, I think the jellyfish, and, and there's some other kind of examples of this too. I don't know whether they, I, I actually, I will be honest, I don't know a ton about jellyfish kind of life cycle. But yeah, I think they can almost rejuvenate themselves. So I don't actually know how much reproduction is going on in them. Oh, I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, I actually need to look that up now that you brought it up. <laughs> That's, that'd be really fascinating. Is that pretty consistent? So like in the, the whales and the sharks that live so long, do they not reproduce until they're like 100 years old or something? Yeah, or, or the other thing is, you know, the number of offspring that each animal will have at a given kind of time. So with each pregnancy. So longer lived animals also tend to have fewer offspring at any time. And those offspring actually take longer to develop. So there's more, if you think about it, you kind of have to extend the time the parental animal is alive to make sure that, you know, you have enough progeny to optimize fitness. Whereas an animal that, you know, is probably not going to survive more than a few years because of predation or something, they need to just have lots of offspring really quickly, can't put too much parental investment in them. And so there's probably not as much opposition molecularly in terms of offsetting aging. I have two follow-up questions to that. Because you talk about the role of gender in aging and the fascinating paradox with women. You mentioned how in every single society, women always live longer. And you have these really cool analogies that make it really approachable. So listeners get the book. But I'm super curious if fertility is involved in that. And just what we were just speaking about with different species having offspring. So does the body, like in a human, I mean, I know it knows when it has a baby, but say a woman has a baby and then she's had the baby. Does the body know like, okay, I'm, I've had my baby, I'm done. And, it, and if so, does that mean that women who don't have children live longer? Yeah. So actually a lot of people I think were interested in this question. I haven't seen any concrete data that really shows that, you know, not having children extends longevity. But we we do know that menopause seems to accelerate longevity. So perhaps there is also this kind of signal that happens that as women transition into menopause, there seems to be, at least when we look epigenetically, an acceleration of the aging process. And then going back to the animals, the other interesting observation is that people have compared this kind of male-female longevity advantage. And for most species, the females outlive the males, although the gap tends to be much bigger in species in which there's more 
maternal versus paternal investment in offspring. So it kind of goes back to this idea. If the, if the fathers are actually not contributing that much to the offspring's survival, they're a little more disposable. They die sooner. Yeah, exactly. But this is probably on a species level and not, I don't know if individually there's kind of some signal going on. It's probably just something that gets genetically selected for it at the species level. Oh, that's really fascinating. And then related to that, have humans always sort of societally taken care of offspring? Like now, for example, you know, if there's an orphan, society takes care of that child, presumably. I don't, I'm not making, I'm not, I'm not making like broad, but that, that concept exists at least. That concept, has that always existed in our species? Do you know? I think, yeah, I think so. Humans tend to be more social, like a more social species. And we tend to, you know, be more in groups rather than kind of individuals off on their own. I also, in terms of, these are a little bit things I'm not totally familiar with, but monogamy, when that kind of arose and where that came from, I think too will dictate some of this as well. But yeah, I think there's always been this kind of communal aspect in human societies. And, you know, people talk about this idea of the grandmother hypothesis, which some people say might be why women live longer because, you know, the grandmothers need to survive to help, you know, their sons and daughters care for their offspring. That That's kind of a theory. I don't know if it's ever been proven out. But yeah, there is this kind of idea that the community also helps raise children. And do you know, this is like a very vague question, but Presumably there's this drive or this concept in our bodies or in our DNA where the goal is continuing the species through offspring seems to be the goal. So is that messaging somewhere in the DNA? Because it seems like the goal could also be preserve the self. Like, so could we change that? I mean, that's a very selfish change, but could that change happen on a genetic level? Yeah, I mean, I think in some ways it kind of is, and this goes back to kind of natural selection versus artificial selection. So genes that kind of make it, you know, and get continue on in a species are going to happen because of natural selection, which is solely on fitness, which and fitness is defined as, you know, the number of offspring that you have that make it to actually be able to reproduce themselves. So I feel like evolutionarily, our bodies are always going to optimize that fitness and reproduction. However, I feel like as humans, we're actually going back and doing some sort of artificial selection, right? We're trying to actually now re-optimize ourselves for other things that are perhaps not fitness related. And in the end, actually, there's, there's a decline in kind of fertility overall. So Yeah, I think perhaps we have kind of shifted the balance to some degree. And I guess I wasn't thinking about this when I asked that question just now, but you do talk in the book about like cancer cells, for example. I mean, I guess in a way, are they, if you hold to the theory, is it the adaptive oncogenesis theory? The theory that they are adapting and kind of, you know, adapting to an environment that's not suitable to them. And so they kind of go rogue and do their own thing. I mean, that in a way, is that the concept of immortality in cells or trying to be immortal? (laughs) 
Yeah. So this is, this comes back also to other kind of concepts in evolutionary biology about group fitness versus individual fitness, which I think a little bit actually, maybe your prior question was getting at, which you can also think that, you know, selection is happening as a group, right? So if even if one individual is really successful, if the entire population can't survive after a while, then that selection won't happen for much longer. And that's kind of, I think, what happens in cancer cells. So these cells, they are what we would call reproducing really quickly. So they're proliferating and dividing and growing. But again, they end up killing their environment and the host and, you know, everyone goes down with the ship. And then the adaptive oncogenesis idea that you mentioned, which is this theory by my colleague, James DeGregory, is this idea that with aging, you know, the internal environment changes. And before, you know, all cells had equal kind of fitness chance. But as the environment gets more, what you might think of hazardous, you kind of get this rise of these certain kind of subclasses of cells, which are tend to be maybe cancer and have this kind of advantage in terms of being hyper proliferative in these environments. I'm sort of embarrassed because before I read your book, they talk about in the biohacking world and the health world and all these podcasts about senescent cells. And they're always posited as automatically like a negative thing, like, oh, got to get rid of senescent cells. Senescent cells are leading to aging. But then I read your book. I didn't realize they're actually like their purpose is to stop cancer and are, are they not necessarily bad in and of themselves, only if they're not gotten rid of, I guess? Exactly. So senescent cells, the the reason they even exist is because they do have some functional utility in our bodies. And we see them in wound healing. We see there's also a wave of senescence, I think, during birth. So there is definitely utility of for senescent cells. And some people have postulated that, you know, it is one kind of anti-cancer mechanism. So if you have a cell that undergoes some damage or some, you know, maladaptive change, the cell kind of has a few options. So one, it can try and fix that. Two, it can undergo apoptosis or cell death. Or the other two are, it can actually undergo senescence. So that cell will no longer divide. It's it doesn't die, but it just sits there and people kind of refer these to these as kind of zombie cells because they're not quite alive and not quite dead. But if none of those things happen, this cell actually has the potential to go on and form cancer, which so they think kind of senescence might be the last kind of fail safe to kind of stop a cell from dividing so it doesn't go on and become hyperproliferative and turn into a tumor. And just in the timeline of that senescent cell, does the body then in the properly functioning body get rid of that senescent cell or does it just hang around perpetually? So often I think the problem is that they do kind of hang around. I think the body potentially has capacity to get rid of them, but like cancer cells, they also have these different mechanisms that make them kind of immune to cell death. So they have what we call anti-apoptotic mechanisms. So they won't undergo cell death on their own. So most of them hang around. And then you can imagine with age, you're going to get more accumulation of them. So there might only be a few when you're much younger, but as more and more cells kind of move into this state, which is kind of this end state, they're going to just start accumulating. And the problem with senescent cells is they tend to have this very 
nasty phenotype where they're highly pro-inflammatory. So they're spitting out all these inflammatory cytokines and growth factors and can actually damage their neighboring cells in turn. So this is a lot of stuff that obviously can go awry in the body. And I just noticed you were saying that with age, this could happen. And I guess we actually probably should define that as well. So when you say this can happen with age, do you mean literally just the amount of time that has passed? Or do you mean with aging, like the way we think of aging? Yeah, so that's a great question. So you, you can imagine how, as a function of time, these will accumulate. But then you can also imagine that rate of accumulation can be dictated by how fast someone's aging. So how, you know, how much damage cells are undergoing in the body, how much, you know, inflammation is in the body. And so cells can actually, more and more cells can actually transition to this senescent state at a faster rate in people who might be aging faster. So yeah, it is this kind of accumulation over time, but the rate of that actually can be dictated by different factors that have to do with biological aging. I'm just realizing, I mean, because reading your book, I kept hearing, you know, biological age versus chronological age. I'm just realizing right now, it should be two different words. Like we shouldn't have the word age to mean, I mean, those are two completely different things. Like the passage of time versus the accumulation of damage. That's not even the same thing. (laughs) I'm feeling frustrated right now. (laughs) Okay. So speaking to that, because there are a lot of theories and you discuss them in the book around what that second definition of aging, that accumulation of damage or that those negative changes that happen. So there's a lot of theories about why that's happening, but you talk about the loss of specificity in cells. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and what your theory is. Yeah. So everyone will have a different definition to what they think biological aging or aging is. And I totally agree with you. I wish we had a different term because I think when you say age or aging, it immediately evokes, you know, this idea of chronological ages. So I, I do wish we could just come up with a better term. I've not been able to yet, but the way I think about kind of biological aging or this actual aging process is that, again, through evolutionary time, our biology is optimized kind of this state of our, of you know, a human living system that is really, you know, optimized for performing all the things that humans do. And through development, we reach that state. And I think of aging as kind of any maladaptive divergence away from that. And it can happen. There's so many things that go wrong with aging. You can kind of diverge from that state in a number of different directions. But it is this loss of this, you know, intricately designed system. And you talk about like the different levels. So, you know, from the atom, I don't have the list of them right here, but, you know, from the atom, cell, organ, organism, and beyond, where does this aging process start? Does it start at the level of the atom or higher than that? Yeah, I don't, I mean, I haven't seen people study it, but at that level, but I can imagine that perhaps it does. But yeah, we usually think that it's going to start at these lowest levels of biological organization. So you have kind of the molecular level, and then, you know, essentially cellular level, there's a few levels in between, and then tissue, organ, organ system, organism, and then it goes up from their population, et cetera. But we think that these are actually small changes that are happening first kind of at the molecular level, 
and, you know, in specific molecules. And then once you get enough change or divergence at that level, it starts affecting the next highest level. So let's say eventually cells are starting to dysfunction. Once there's enough dysfunction in, you know, a kind of critical mass of cells, it starts affecting tissue function. And eventually tissue function is going to affect organ function. As certain organs fail, the whole system kind of starts to fall apart. So this is, I think, why we don't, quote unquote, see aging till much later, because you can't see these small changes. They're actually what's starting much, much earlier in our lifespan, potentially before we're even born. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like BrainTap, Infrared Sauna, Hyperbaric Oxygen Chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys, and you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. And so that concept of aging starting in certain places and then moving into certain systems For most people, where has aging affected the majority of their organs and systems, or does it tend to stay in one avenue or one lane? And I have a second question, but first, just to paint that picture. Yeah, so it's usually the former. So because most of our systems are interconnected, as you start getting dysfunction or failure in one, it's going to also impact failure in other ones. And that's why I think with age we tend to see this increase in what we call comorbidity. So people developing two, three, perhaps even four or five diseases simultaneously, which also makes it really hard to treat clinically. But basically, once when people die, it's kind of what we think of as this tipping point. Like you've kind of got to a point where the entire system collapses because there's kind of so much widespread dysfunction so most people, you know, we, we give people a primary cause of death, but it's often a lot of compounding factors that are contributing to that failure. 
And so if you put it on a graph, people who die from the one that they decide is what they died from, do younger people tend to have way less of the comorbidities? And then if you're older and you die, so if you die of heart disease when you're you know 30 versus like 70, are you much more likely to have a lot more comorbidities at 70 than at 30? Yeah, I think of, you know, when people have, you know, have early mortality, I almost feel like these are these critical events. So it's like these huge disruptors of the system. So, you know, you have a heart attack and, you know, you you can no longer deliver oxygen nutrients to the rest of your body. And that it's kind of like a, you know, game over. But for when people tend to die older at older ages, it's more this, it tends to be more progressive. Of course, there can be these really acute sudden events that can kind of, quote, take someone off out. I think an analogy I use in the book is this kind of hillside. And if you think of the bottom of the hillside, you kind of fall off the cliff as death. Younger people are going to be towards the top of the hill, but you can imagine there could be some really massive acute event that could make them fall all the way to the bottom. So it's going to take a bigger event to get them there. Whereas for an older person, they're slowly kind of making their way closer and closer to the bottom. And it, it takes a much smaller kind of event to trigger this kind of overall failure. Okay, gotcha. We were talking before about how we have a mutual friend, James Clement, and he's done a lot of work in supercentenarians. So what's happening with that population of people? Are they just immune to all of these issues that otherwise affect other people with aging? Yeah, so the, they're a really interesting population. And yeah, there's James and there's other people who have been studying centenarians as well. He studies super centenarians, which are even older, so 110 and above. And they they seem to just have this much slower rate of aging. So they seem to be much more, like you said, immune to all the things that might make everyone else kind of age faster. And the other really interesting thing about centenarians and supercentenarians is that most of them stay healthy for a much longer proportion of their life. So it's not just, you know, they develop some diseases in their 80s and are still able to survive, but they're actually what we call compressing the morbidity. So they're they're kind of extending what we call their health span and only getting disease at kind of the very end of life. And centenarians actually in terms of medical costs have much lower medical costs than people who are dying in their 70s or 80s or kind of any of the normal life expectancy. I have two follow-up questions from that. One is, I guess, because of their genetic profile that is allowing them to you know, experience that. And I do want to be clear because I think, and we could talk about this, but I think otherwise we wouldn't say that genetics are the creme de la creme of the reason that people live long. But in this case, with, with these centenarians and supercentenarians, maybe it is the, the reason. So those genetics, are they basically doing things that we could do if we could edit our genome or make those epigenetic changes in our own genome? Or is it like an outlier type gene situation where we can't even have that concept? Yeah. I mean, hypothetically, we could if we could figure out what they were. So exactly like you said, for most people, genes aren't going to determine our longevity or necessarily our risk of disease unless you have very specific kind of risk alleles. But these supercentenarians and even 
you know, centenarians tend to have kind of won the genetic lottery. So they have kind of the perfect permutation of genetic variants, which gives them this advantage. And there's a lot of people looking at genetics of centenarians and supercentenarians to try and figure out what what genes are actually giving them this advantage and can we figure out, you know, even if we're not going to edit genes, but how do we target those pathways? The problem is that traits like longevity tend to have lots and lots and lots of genes that are all acting simultaneously. So again, it's not that they got the one longevity gene, but they just got the perfect pattern or kind of perfect combination of genes to kind of get to that point. And it's not clear exactly how many genes are contributing and different supercentenarians or different centenarians might actually have different combinations. So there might not even be like the single magic version. But hypothetically, if we can start figuring out maybe what these are, we could try and optimize for that. But it's a little more complex, I think, than people originally had hoped. I was actually thinking about that last night when I was reading the Naked Mole Rat <laughs> study, because I feel like there are a lot of like key genes that people even you know, like me and, and, and my, my audience, so non-scientists <laughs> who are we're now familiar with, like CERT2 and, okay, maybe I'm just going to think of CERT2, but <laughs> like there's a few key genes that people think of. But then I was just, you know, reading through some of your research and I was like, oh, there are so many genes. <laughs> so I was actually wondering, I guess, talking about something like CERT2, because you talk in the book, and this blew my mind, and I would love to hear a little bit more about it. You talked about some research was it your research that you conducted in yeast and the two aging phenotypes? Oh, no. Yeah, that's not mine. I love that study. It's such a beautiful study. So I'm fascinated by it because you were talking about how they were doing research in yeast. And basically, at least in the beginning, there were two, and correct me if I'm wrong, but two general phenotypes of aging, one that involved the mitochondria and one that involved the nucleolus in the cell. And there was a influence of genes in that and it all involved lifespan. And But what was really interesting, so I just spat out a lot of words, so I'd love to hear your thoughts and just the concept of the study. But what really caught me was you're talking about how it seemed to be like determined, you know, early in the lifespan about which profile the yeast would exhibit, you know, that led to their their aging rate. Yeah. So what's going on there? And is that happening in humans? Yeah, so that that was this really beautiful, elegant study where, you know, because also because the way yeast, quote, reproduce, I think it made it feasible. So they can actually, they they had the the kind of mother cells in these microfluidic devices kind of fixed, and then they could watch as the daughter cells, so yeast bud off. So like the cell, the next cell kind of like just buds off and then falls off. And they could capture these and actually track the lifespan of these changes. And so they looked first at kind of two genetic strains. So they had two. So I think, yeah, sir, two was one. I'm forgetting what the other one was. Oh, HAP4? Yes. Yeah. And they could look at the trajectory of kind of molecular changes of these two strains over the lifespan. And they found, you know, one exhibit exhibited a lot of kind of chromatin-related aging changes, whereas the other one was more mitochondrial. And, and these pathways were very clear and seemed to start 
really early. So it was almost like this deterministic thing, which based on the genes was how that yeast cell was going to age. Then eventually they actually kind of combined them and got this third pathway as well, which was really interesting. But in thinking about how this comes back to humans, I do think, I don't think there's been explicitly anything shown. And it's, again, I don't think it's going to be down to a single gene, but we probably each do have a propensity to age in a different way. So some people might be more at risk of, you know, frailty or neurodegeneration with aging, whereas maybe other people are more at risk of some kind of metabolic change or developing diabetes with aging. And I think once we can eventually get a handle on kind of personalized aging risk, I think we can actually eventually maybe even tailor kind of prevention or treatments towards different groups of people. I find this so fascinating. And and you were talking about how in those studies they would try overexerting certain genes, I think either the SIRT2 or the HAP4, and then it would make the yeast, you know, lean towards one of the phenotypes rather than the other or that third phenotype. What really was distressing me, because it was a high percent that would lean towards a certain phenotype if they edited the gene, but it wasn't 100%. And so I'm just haunted by, like, what are the other factors in that? I just want to know. It might be some degree of kind of random stochasticity. So there could be a little randomness, but then there's always like a propensity towards one or the other, depending on which gene you're overexpressing. And then I think in the third one, I think they overexpressed both together. I need to go back and read the study. It's been a little while and found this other trajectory, but they also found, I think that there's still ones that follow the other two trajectories as well. So there's a little bit of which, you know, randomness in which way you're going to go. So you can think like the, what are those called? Like the Plinko balls and is it the price is right? I don't know what, right? You drop the ball down and it kind of finds its way. You can bias it a little bit, but yeah, there's, it's not a perfectly deterministic kind of feature. Well, actually that ties in nicely to questions I wanted to ask surrounding your work, because you talk a lot in the book about the evolution of creating your tests for measuring aging and that whole process and the data and the algorithms that go into it and accounting for all of this information, which just seems so overwhelming to me. And so the, the big question is for measuring aging. So this concept of biological age versus chronological age and maybe self-explanatory, and we've been saying it a lot, but chronological age would be just the literal amount of years that a person is alive. And then biological involves the, how would you define biological age? Yeah. So again, I think this is a place everyone would define it slightly differently. The way I define it is just kind of how much you've diverged from that optimal state. And you can, oh, we always have to put it relative to the general population. So we're not measuring like the actual age of someone's cells or systems in terms of like a chronological time. But we're saying you have the profile of someone in the general population or whatever population we developed this algorithm out of that is, you know, 40 years old or 50 years old or whatever it is. And then you can compare that to someone's chronological age to say, in general, do you tend to be aging faster or slower based on what we would expect for someone with your chronological age. 
I'm super curious, just because of the rampant increase of degenerative health issues and chronic disease, are clocks that are created now a substantially different rate than 50 years ago, 100 years ago? What we're comparing it to? Has it changed a lot? Yeah, so that's actually a really good question. And it's not something people think that much about. But yeah, if you were to create a clock using today's population, what the data actually suggests is it people today are look actually slightly younger than they did, let's say in the 80s or 50s, which kind of, it makes a little bit of sense, right? People are living longer as well. So it kind of matches the increases in life expectancy. But the problem is that most of the, not most, but a lot of the epigenetic clocks were developed in populations from, let's say, the 80s or, you know, a few decades ago because we needed to actually have a long enough follow time, follow up time to actually see mortality. So in some ways, the the actual numbers people are getting are, are a little bit arbitrary because it's in reference to, you know, some population back from the 1980s. So I always like to tell people, if you're actually measuring yourself, that first measurement is not actually that big a deal. And that should just be your kind of baseline. And going forward, you should always just, you know, put it in context compared to yourself. And really, the change within yourself is more important than, you know, in reference to some random population, which for most of the clocks, most people don't even know what population that was. Mm, Okay. That's fascinating. And it also kind of relates to another concept I'd never really thought about until reading your book, but you talk about how really arbitrary the concept of even disease is. Like we basically just have to come up with a tipping point and then we decide certain things are diseases and before that they're not diseases. But all of these processes for all of these potential diseases are all happening all the time. And we just define them as a disease at a, I mean, relatively arbitrary number. I don't know how the numbers are decided. Uh, Yeah, I think, you know, the problem human, we love to label things and have definitions of things. But, you know, these are kind of his like cultural concepts of disease. So we've decided that once your, you know, HbA1c or your fasting glucose reaches this magic threshold now you suddenly have diabetes. And I guess we've done a little bit better with saying, okay, maybe there's this pre-diabetes stage. But we we like to kind of discretize this. So say you either have it or you don't, when actually all of these things lie on some continuum and all of these diseases are actually a process. They're not necessarily a specific state and they're constantly changing. So there's a huge debate in aging of whether we should call aging a disease, but I, I don't like the concept of disease in general. And I actually think most of the diseases we talk about are just kind of some end stage value we've attributed to the aging process in, an, in a specific system. That's really interesting. Yeah, because I know David Sinclair is really big on defining aging as a disease. In a way, if you step back it's like it sort of has to be disease because everything's a disease or it's not a disease because nothing's a disease. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. In a way. I have more questions about the measuring, but just a really quick tangent question. So do we start exhibiting signs of aging the second we're born? Yeah. So 
A lot of people are really interested in this question of when does aging actually start? And probably the person that I know that's looked into this the most is my colleague, Vadim Gladyshev, who's at Harvard. And he's actually tried to define what he calls this ground zero state. So the state of having the lowest kind of biological age, not chronological, but kind of biological age. And then from there, thinking the idea is from there, biological age starts increasing. And what he shows that that is actually before birth. I think he's estimated it at like eight days after conception. So yeah, it's, it's happening pretty early. And again, he's using uh, epigenetic data to define this. So it might actually be that aging in different facets starts at different times. So there might not be some, you know, specific time for all age changes start accumulating, even at the molecular level, but at least epigenetically, it seems to hit this kind of bottom out at day eight and then start increasing from there. Wow. Talk about it's all downhill from, from here. Oh my God, that's funny. Okay. So going back to the actual measuring, because I bet listeners are listening and thinking, I want to measure my biological age. So how did you develop the system that you have for measuring biological age? What is it actually measuring? Yeah, so I've developed, I've worked it on a few different kinds of systems. So the one that actually started about a decade ago was just, you can measure or try and estimate biological age just from the normal types of lab tests that you would get done at your annual physical. So things like, cholesterol and different inflammatory markers like CRP, HbA1c or glucose, and these, and then a bunch of things to do with cell counts. And we actually developed a way that you can combine those into a single kind of aging profile or biological age score, or we often call this your phenotypic age score, and show that that is a better predictor of risk of disease or mortality risk than your chronological age. So that gives you kind of a whole person, kind of systemic biological age. But actually, what my lab is more interested in are these molecular measures of biological age. And usually what we use is epigenetic data. So people may, maybe David, David Sinclair, if he was on, talked about the epigenetic clock. So these are measures that use something called DNA methylation. So it's not changes to your DNA sequence. So you still A, C, G, and T, you're not changing that. But what you're changing is you have these chemical kind of tags that can happen at specific sites throughout your genome that we call CPGs, where you have a C right next to a G. And this just changes kind of the accessibility of that part of your DNA. So the interesting thing to think about is all of the cells in your body have the exact same DNA but clearly they exhibit very different phenotypes. So your skin cell does not act or look the same as your brain cells or your neurons. And what gives it their kind of phenotype is the epigenome. So it tells the skin cell, you use this part of the genome. These are the protein products that you can derive, whereas your brain cell will use different parts of the genome. And this is dictated by turning on or off certain parts using these kind of epigenetic modifications. The interesting thing is that the epigenome gets dysregulated. We think dysregulated, but it definitely changes with aging. And we can actually look at this profile to say, 
oh, you've had kind of this degree of drift or change that might be indicative of someone or a cell or a tissue that is of some kind of chronological age. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment. And they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon. Or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, Two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Okay, wow. That was a lot. No, 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 I love it. I love it. So some questions about the tests. Actually, when I was talking to James, he was saying that they use the phenotypic age in a lot of their trials to see if what they're doing is effective. So that was super cool. So that first type that with the nine biomarkers to clarify, what are some examples of those biomarkers of the nine? Yeah. So for that one, you have things from your CBC. So your cell blood count. So things like what white blood cell percentage, something called red cell distribution width, which is just how wide your, the, how, how much variance there is in the width of your red blood cells. So a bunch of these kind of little measures you have things that map onto kidney function, so creatinine, alkaline phosphatase. You have liver function, and then you have fasting glucose, and you have, oh, this is testing my actually memory, albumins in there. I should remember all these. Yeah, I have to go back and look at it exactly. I found one of the ones online and was taking it, but then I realized I wasn't sure. I don't think I had all the data I needed to fill it out correctly. Because then I did it and it gave me my my result. And I think it basically said I was like dead. So I was like, I don't think I put in the right numbers. (laughs) Oh, so the other, yeah. So that's the other thing people need to pay attention to are the units. So the other thing is if you, if the lab you did your test at measure in different units than that one, you have to actually convert them or it'll give you some crazy, insane number. It's it. Yeah. I was like, okay, that's (laughs) not correct. That doesn't sound like it was correct. Oh, CRP is another one in there, C-reactive protein, which is... It needed a percent, and the data I had was not in a percent, and I was like, I don't know how to convert this to clarify. So for that test, is that comparing just to other people with similar biomarkers, or is it comparing to an in-between marker, like a methylation status or something? Yeah, so that one is comparing to other people. So actually, it was developed using a study called the National Health and Nutrition Examination Study and Haynes, which is supposed to be for the U.S. nationally representative. So it should represent all different types of people within the population at about the percentages that they exist in the population. And so, but the issue again, like before, was that we have to use a population from the early 80s in order to actually be able to train the test because we need mortality 
follow-up. We need to know who lives, how long they live. So we need a long kind of follow-up time. So that one is saying compared to the average United States population in the 80s, this is how old you your profile looks. You said the population in the 80s actually lived shorter than today. Yes. So most people will actually score lower than their chronological age on that test. So it actually under kind of predicts age. So even though they lived shorter, did they not have lower rates of chronic disease as well? It depends. Some chronic diseases, there were higher rates. So I think we're doing better in certain cancers, uh, mostly probably because of earlier screening or better screening. But yeah, I think the one thing that people have actually shown is our life expectancy has increased a lot, but our health span hasn't increased quite as much. So we're we're actually just keeping people alive who are sicker longer. But we actually compared biological age between that population and more current populations. And we also find that people today do at least in terms of these parameters, look younger. Oh, we have a lower biological age now as well? Yeah. So the average person today has a lower biological age than the average person then. We've also looked at within different groups. So actually the biggest difference tends to be older people. So I forget what the age cutoff was, but I think for people in their 70s, they're even younger biologically than people in their 70s back in the 80s. Wow. I really wouldn't expect that. Just with all of the messaging about like the obesity epidemic and metabolic syndrome, it's just kind of blowing my mind. We did try to estimate some of this, some of the reasons for this. And, you know, I think the big one it came down to is smoking. So people smoked a lot more in the past than they do today. And then, you know, obesity, I think epidemic really started around that time as well. And then there's also use of medication. So cholesterol lowering medication or blood pressure lowering medications that we think might actually be helping people to some extent. And then so then that second type of measuring that you are doing more now with the epigenetics and the methylation and all of that. So how is that tested? Yeah. So the way, so if someone wanted to get their own tested, it's kind of feels like a genetic test. So if anyone's done 23andMe or Ancestry or any of these genetic tests, it's very similar where for a lot of the companies, you'll you'll either spit in a tube or you'll do a finger prick and do, you know, a dried blood spot. And then what that gets sent to a lab and then the DNA gets extracted from that. And then they go through and they measure for, let's say, the million cells in that sample, the percentage of cells that are methylated or unmethylated at, you know, let's say a hundred or but often 200,000 to a million sites throughout the genome. Then this gets fed into an algorithm that was developed with machine learning, AI, and it spits out a number. So what you're comparing it to, how was that determined? Did you look at the methylation status of populations and how it correlated to their biological or chronological health? Yeah, so there's actually, there's a lot of different epigenetic clocks and they're all kind of derived slightly differently. So some people may have heard of the Horvath clock, which is kind of the most famous epigenetic clock, although technically not the first, even though people talk about it as the first one. And that one was basically Steve Horvath took 
tons of data from, I think, 52 different tissue types and measured DNA methylation on each of them. He knew the age of the person that those tissues came from. And then he made a epigenetic age to predict that age. So it's relative to whoever this population of people who these tissues came from. It's, it, it's actually a hard one to define because it's not a specific population, but it's relative to whatever that data was. The one we developed a little bit later is actually based on that uh, phenotypic age variable. So the nine markers, we're actually trying to predict that the output of that. So that phenotypic age, but using methylation instead of just the nine markers. So that one still should be in reference to that kind of 1980s U.S. population. So to clarify, so you're comparing the nine markers versus the methylation. That's two separate tests where you're trying to get the same answer? Same answer. Yeah. Because the idea, so most people who are developing these epigenetic clocks were always trying to predict age. So when you when you develop them or tr- what we call train uh, epigenetic clock, you have to pick the variable that you're actually trying to be able to predict. And for most people, they're going to predict chronological age because it's the easiest variable to actually get. And when you think, oh, I'm trying to make a measure of aging, I'll predict age. But as we've talked about biological age and chronological age are not perfectly correlated. And we know people of the same chronological age have different kind of health status. So that's why, at least for this pheno, pheno age clock, we actually tried to predict this kind of physiological age that was based on the nine biomarkers and linked to remaining life expectancy. Oh, okay. So this is so interesting because on the one hand, if you're trying to predict chronological age, you would think oh, that's more certain because it's literally verified by the birth certificate. So we can know if we got a quote, right answer. But because what we know about biological age, it's not really that certain because any given person presumably could have a very different biological age on on the inside. So in, in that way, the biological age is more quote certain. But then it's like, how do you define biological age? Because it's so different. For people, there's like no one certain target, it seems, to aim for. Yeah, this is, I think, the hardest thing about this field is, again, this idea of what we call machine learning, your ground truth. So like you said, if your whole goal is to predict chronological age, let's say you want a forensic test, so you can say, oh, this blood sample came from someone who is 45, you have a verifiable ground truth. You know in your training what everyone's chronological age is. But if we're trying to predict biological age, this is biological age is what we call a latent variable. It's something that is not actually observable or measurable, and we have to always kind of estimate it. So we never really know if we're how accurately we're actually predicting this because there's no actual variable to compare against. So We always have to come up with these kind of other ways to validate it. And this comes back to, there's a concept called kind of construct validity. So if I think that I'm predicting biological age correctly, what should my measure be able to do? So, you know, it should be able to predict mortality above and beyond knowing someone's chronological age. It should be able to predict disease. It should be responsive to interventions that we think are actually impacting aging. So you kind of have to do all these little separate tests to convince yourself you're actually doing a good job at measuring that thing that 
is, quote, unmeasurable. Kind of seems like the difference between, I feel like chronological age is trying to, it's like picking out a person from a group of people, like who is actually that person. And then biological age would be like the same person pretending like they're all these different people and trying to pick who is like the true essence of that person. (laughs) It's just very vague. So question about the testing the methylation. Can we intervene and change these methylation factors? And if so, have they done tests in rodents to change their methylation and see if it affects their chronological or their biological age? Yeah, so there are a few ways that you can change, quote, the epigenetic age. And a lot of the studies, as you kind of insinuated, are done in animal models and mostly in mice. So the big thing that I think has been pretty robustly shown to change epigenetic age in at least a specific mouse strain is caloric restriction, which at least in that mouse strain we know also increases life expectancy. So that kind of makes sense. And you see a pretty dramatic decrease in the epigenetic age in response. People are also looking for what other features might impact epigenetic age. For humans, we have to rely on population-level observational data. So we don't have necessarily clinical trials, but we can say looking at people in the population who tend to score younger, what are their characteristics? And it's, they're not surprising. They're, you know, they exercise more, they eat, you know, more vegetables, they get better sleep, all kind of the normal health behaviors we think of as being good for us. I'm glad you brought those up because obviously topics that the audience is really interested in. But before that, so have there been actual or is there the ability or the science to, because those are interventions to try to affect methylation, I guess, or epigenetics and then see how that affects things. But do we have the ability to just go in and edit the methylation itself so we can confirm if methylation changes actually affect biological or chronological age? Yeah, so this would be like, you know, the golden perfect experiment. And actually there are technologies where you can go in and, you know, add methylation or or remove methylation from specific sites. The problem is that when we look at the clocks or we look at kind of the aging patterns, it's not a change in methylation at, you know, one or five or 10 sites, it's changes at hundreds of thousands. It's kind of going back to that genetics thing, right? It's this compounding effect of large patterns of change across lots of sites. Hypothetically, you could potentially in the future figure out a way to edit that. And we also don't know, well, what if you found some, quote, hub site and you you know found like the 10 most important sites that edited those And there are people looking into this, but we're not exactly sure what, you know, whether that'll even be able to permeate and have an effect. There are things that you can do that actually indirectly affect the methylation pattern. And perhaps David also talked about this. So you can actually do what's called epigenetic reprogramming. So if you overexpress these four factors, you actually get a change in the epigenome. And this does seem to have kind of a, quote, rejuvenation or age reversal effect. So people are really interested in kind of looking at it from this angle. Okay. So like that example of changing those four factors, changing those four factors where? In one place or everywhere? Yeah. So this isn't this isn't changing the epigenetics of those four factors, but it's four 
essentially genes that if you overexpress them in a cell, they're actually called Yamanaka factors. So people might have heard them from other things, or often also people call them OSKM, which is the first letter of each of the factors. You can actually take, let's say, even an old skin cell, and if you and if you overexpress them for 30 days, you can convert that back into what by all intents and purposes, it looks like an embryonic stem cell. So people have been really interested in, oh, is this completely rejuvenating the cells as well? And now instead of taking an old skin cell and making it an embryonic stem cell, can we just take an old skin cell and make it a young skin cell? So people are looking into actually how to do that. And all of this is happening by changing the epigenome. So it's kind of resetting that epigenetic pattern back to an earlier state. Was that the work that he did in the lab with reversing glaucoma in the eye? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that's one example. Yeah, so David did that in terms of targeting these neural ganglial cells in the eye. And actually, we were a part of that one, too, where we actually measured the epigenetic age in the cells. And then other people have also done this either trying to do it whole body or in specific tissues as well and shown kind of similar things. And when that, that reversion happens with the Yamanuka factors, is the reverted cell identical to a cell that would be just normally at that age? Or can you tell the difference? Like, does any hint of its past linger? Yeah. So you can tell the difference. And actually, we've gone back and looked at kind of specifically the markers in the epigenetic clocks. And what we can find is like very drastic reversal of a few subcategories of those markers, so specific types of epigenetic markers. But then there's also a few that seem kind of impervious to it. They do not seem to reset. So the cells aren't fully reversed back to an original state. But the question is, is it good enough and did we actually kind of reverse the important parts? So how, you know, how important are, are the ones that are reversed versus the ones that are not? And can this only occur through these methods? Like do any dietary lifestyle changes affect Yamanaka factors? They don't. The, the one thing that does affect them is actually embryogenesis. So this, again, going back to this idea of this ground zero state, this is why you can take you know, an oocyte or egg cell from a woman, let's say she's 30, and a, a sperm cell from a man who's 30, and somehow combine them and get an embryo that's zero, according to epigenetic clocks. So this is something that happens naturally, we think, during this kind of reproduction. But, you know, the question is, how do we then do it in a full adult? And it's probably not going to be through behaviors, but we do need to figure out therapeutically or pharmacologically how to do this safely and across all the diverse cell types in uh, adult human's body. And do you think with the future of, I mean, just thinking big, like the future of anti-aging or even reversing aging, do you think it will be more something like that where we are taking the existing cells and having them revert back to a younger state or would it be something like replacing the cells with just brand new cells? Maybe I just made up a dichotomy that doesn't even exist, but <laughs> options for the future. No, people are, are thinking, about, thinking about this dichotomy and, and they kind of can follow similar streams. So yeah, one question is, do you just kind of do this 
every now and then, right? And push, push yourself back a little bit in biological time? Or do we just generate better, healthier organs, what we would call ex vivo, so outside the body and put them in? And actually, this technology can be used in some ways for both. So one issue with transplants is often rejection. So if you're getting, let's say, a kidney from someone else, your body might be more prone to reject that. But hypothetically, if you could, you know, in the future, I mean, not right now, grow organs from the cells in your body. So the nice thing is you can take, you know, a skin cell, reset it to an embryonic stem cell, and then actually convert it to various cell types. So people convert them to neurons or all these different types of cells. So hypothetically, in the future, you might actually be able to repopulate your body with these cells that are actually reprogrammed ex vivo. But again, it's just still a little ways off. There's a lot of kind of kinks that need to be ironed out. I've had Sergey Young on the show a few times, and he talked about like growing organs within yourself from cells. Is that sort of like the same concept? Yeah, I think I think so. I think you would just do it potentially outside the body so that I think it'd be easier to monitor how it was going. Right. I mean, again, if you could, you you still need to develop these systems to actually keep organs functioning and be able to grow them outside the body, but hypothetically. I was just thinking about it more, and maybe I'm just so naive and don't really understand everything, but that there hasn't been some sort of genetic glitch that did cause people to age backwards. Like, is that even possible that naturally it could just happen? If the genome decided for whatever reason it wanted to age backwards, do you think it could? Like, if it just wanted to? Yeah, I'm trying to think how... I feel like it would have to be a lot of things simultaneous, right? It'd have to be at the right timing because you don't want to do anything that'll dis- disturb development. So it's this genetic thing that, let's say, increased or overexpressed certain factors. It might actually disrupt development or change things there. But yeah, I don't know. I've never even thought about that before. Well, I was thinking about Benjamin Button and I was thinking, I mean, that sounds really silly to say like why this hasn't happened, but... I don't know, what crazier things <laughs> seems like have happened. I don't think you would be born old like Ben, like in Benjamin Button, right? He's like born like 100 or whatever. And then like, but I don't know if there would be something that could a little bit rejuvenate yourself. But it, yeah, it would have to occur at the right time as well. And and is what you just spoke to, like the dangers of that, is that related to, because when they've done tests with the Yamanaka factors, isn't there an issue with keeping them on too long? Yes, Yeah, so that's the other thing is a lot of these things is kind of the Goldilocks issue where you want just enough but not too much or they become problematic. So for the Yamanaka factors, you know, they don't just, quote, rejuvenate a cell, but they also what we call de-differentiate a cell. So a skin cell or, or a fibroblast is no longer that cell type. If you keep them on long enough, they go back to these kind of stem cell states. And you can imagine... Let's say you're going to do reprogramming in your liver. You want all your liver cells to actually maintain their identity. So you want the hepatocytes to stay hepatocytes and Kufer cells to stay Kufer cells. But if you turn these factors on too long, you basically turn into a liver of just stem cells. And then those stem cells don't really know their identity. They can turn into all sorts of 
nasty identities and you form these teratomas, which are tumors made out of kind of a hodgepodge of all these different cell types. Oh, wow. So it would sort of be like if you had a, a picture that was all messed up and you started erasing it to make it look better, but then if you erased it too far. You wouldn't know, yeah, what it should Yeah. Oh, wow. That's fascinating. Well, speaking of stem cells, so practical things that people do today, how do you feel about things like stem cells or you talk in your book about, you know, young blood and blood transplants, but then also things like, you know, rapamycin and calorie mimetics. What do you find practically seems to have the most effect, an anti-aging effect? Yeah. I mean, I think for me, the only thing I would put my money behind right now are more the behavioral things. So diet, exercise and those kind of things, which is not exciting to people, right? They want this new cutting edge technology or magic bullet or, you know, what's the drug I can take that's going to make me live a lot longer or feel a lot younger. And there are things that people are testing out, but at least I haven't seen really good enough evidence that I would say, yeah, that's a really great kind of aging intervention. So rapamycin is one that people are very interested in. There's good data around it, but I think there needs to be more data, especially in humans, to actually show that this will be beneficial to aging. Metformin is another one people are very interested in, and this is a diabetes drug that actually has been tested a lot in humans, but in another context. So people are actually starting these clinical trials looking at aging specifically. But those will take, you know, a decade or so to actually start getting answers on. And then the other kind of more what people might consider kind of weird science that I actually find very fascinating are this idea of kind of plasma exchange. Not that I think it's anywhere near being therapeutically ready, but the idea that a old animal actually can have some benefit from getting blood from a young animal and almost The question is, are you actually diluting out problematic things in the old blood, or is there some kind of magic factors in the young blood? I think it's probably the former, and I think that's what the field is leaning towards. But yeah, it is a really fascinating concept where these circulating things, how do they actually affect how our cells are aging and our cells are actually responding to whether these things are present or not. With the dilution effect, because I think you talked in the book about how they would do tests diluting with, you know, saline compared to blood, for example. Do you know, I don't know if you remember, but was there any, I know they saw the benefits with the saline dilution. Were there still more benefits compared with using actual blood or was it comparable? Yeah, I think in that study, they didn't have like three arms. So I don't think they actually compared for like a full plasma. Yeah, I think it was saline with albumin. But yeah, the the idea was that that was good enough to get the effect. But there probably are some, it's probably a little bit of both. I would imagine there are some factors in younger blood that are going to be beneficial. Uh, the other study I love from Solvalita's group at UCSF is they actually took blood from exercise mice and gave it to non-exercising mice, and it had a beneficial effect. And that's probably not just dilution. There probably is some factor in blood in response to exercise that's actually beneficial. 
Hi friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. There's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, <laughs> drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee, and it is called Danger Coffee, and friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee and use the coupon code MELANIEAVALON to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash dangercoffee with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10-year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. What is the amount of plasma or blood required for this? Like if people are getting blood transfusions, is it that amount or more, less? Yeah, I actually don't know the answer to this. It's, yeah, I'd have to go back and actually look at the research. So the interesting thing is all these studies actually came out of this paradigm called parabiosis, where it's not really exchanging blood or plasma 
per se, but it's actually connecting the circulatory systems of two mice. So you would actually, they're kind of, they're sewn together. It's, it's kind of a harsh surgery, but you connect like a young one to an old one or a young one to a young one or old one to an old one. And then you can compare the different groups. So in that case, they're actually, their entire circulatory system is kind of being shared. But yeah, in the actual exchange protocols, I don't recall the amount of plasma. And I think people probably do different amounts for different studies. I'm just wondering, I struggle with anemia and I had to have a blood transfusion at one point. So I'm just wondering, I wonder how old the person was <laughs> that the blood that I got. Wow. And this makes you think that there's like some science behind vampires living forever. If they're, is this something that you've done or would do or engage in? Not at this point, but I, I am happy to watch the science unfold. And I think to me in the future, probably a better direction would be to figure out what the factors are, either the problematic factors or the beneficial factors, and to actually therapeutically target them. Since we're not going to be, I don't think, or should be harvesting blood or plasma from young people. I don't think that go over very well in terms of PR. Oh man, can you imagine being the head of that PR campaign? What about rapamycin? Have you taken rapamycin? I have not, but that's another one too that I'm holding out hope for. I feel like of all the kind of anti-aging drugs that people are really excited about, that's the one if I was a betting person would maybe bet on. But I tend to be very cautious in terms of my buy-in into different interventions. So I will wait for a little more data. I feel like I'm, I have the luxury of being young enough right now that I might not need it immediately. So uh, I'll give it 10 years and then reevaluate probably. Okay. I've been thinking a lot about it. I'm like, I want to try it. I know a lot of people are. And Matt Caberline, who's, you know, one of the big advocates, I think makes a very compelling point. So to be determined. It's on my, on my to-do list. So the practical implementations for diet and lifestyle things, do you practice calorie restriction, fasting, either of those? Yeah, I've done. So I feel like my diet changes a little bit. I, you know, go in and out of different fasting regimens. So I've done intermittent fasting where I do like time restricted feeding. Now, because of my workout routine, I'm doing it slightly less because I feel like I need the calories at certain times a day. But, and I have tried Vulture Longo's fasting mimicking diet. I found it very difficult, but I measured my biomarkers before and after, and I did actually see an improvement. So I, I do believe that it does probably have an effect, but yeah, it's very difficult. It, I found it very difficult to do, especially you can't do probably any exercise during those five days. There's just not enough reserve, but exercise is one thing I think that everyone should be doing and that I try and make a point of doing almost every day, if not every day. Quick comment on the FMD thing. And you said you measured before and after. So if somebody is taking, you know, taking these measurements and when you checked your age, was that with your phenotypic age or was that with the methylation? So this is a long time ago. It was with an earlier version of the phenotypic age, but still using kind of those regular lab tests that you would get done at a physician's office. Okay. So for both of those, for that type of testing and then the, you know, the epigenetic testing, how fast can people see changes and how long might interventions last? Does it 
oscillate pretty regularly. And if it does, then what does that say about the implications? Exactly. So this is actually a really important critical point that my lab started looking at two or three years ago, where especially for the epigenetic clocks, our question was, even if you measured twice in the exact same sample, so this isn't even like a daily or monthly change in your epigenetic age, but even the exact same sample, how much variability. And what we found is actually a lot of the clocks were really bad in terms of having high variability. Sometimes you'd get even a nine-year difference from the same exact sample. So, I mean, this is where I thought, oh, epigenetic clocks are over. You're not going to be able to use them for clinical trials or personal tracking. But we actually spent a really long time trying to develop a statistical method to remove the variability, and we were actually successful in doing it. And some of the consumer-based clocks use this new method, but not all of them. So I would say if someone's using a consumer-based clock, ask the company about their reliability. But in terms of how quickly you can see change, it'll depend a little bit on the intervention. So I think, you know, kind of things like FMD, you probably would see a change after one cycle of that because it's a pretty extreme kind of intervention for anyone who's done it. Or if you did like a really long water fast, I mean, your body definitely will react to that. The question is then, you know, how long is that maintained? Is it just this acute response? So actually, I did work with Walter on a study where we tested for people who did three consecutive cycles of FMD. I think it was once a month for three months. And we tested them after. And then we also waited, I think it was five months with them just living their normal lives, not doing the intervention and tested again. And we found that there was a decrease in this, this time it was using the more clinical biological age measure, but also that that was for the most part sustained. There was a tiny rebound, but they still did sustain a decrease in their biological age score, even after they'd resumed kind of normal life. Oh, wow. That's promising. Are your tests, so like the methylation one, is that available direct to consumer? It's not available from me. So with me advocating for it, I'm not getting paid. I don't sell the tests, but it was licensed by a company called Elysium Health. So they do provide a consumer product that uses saliva to assess epigenetic age. And they do use this new method that removes a lot of technical variants. And I think in some of their information online, they show how kind of reliable their measure is. But then I think since we published that paper, I would imagine other companies are starting to adopt the the new method for actually calculating them, but they use different, everyone kind of uses a different clock. So they actually, at one point, Elysium Basis was a sponsor on IF Podcast. Are you familiar with that, their supplement basis? Yep. Yeah. Oh yeah. How do you feel about NR and slash NMN? So I used to take um, Basis. I stopped not because of any problem with it. Like it wasn't like, oh, something happened and that made me stop. I just, I wasn't keeping up with it anyway and then stopped taking it. Again, this is another one like rapamycin where I think it has potential, but there still needs to be a few more studies till I would feel confident that, you know, taking it would probably be a benefit to me. I've been on I've been on the NR versus NMN train and debate for so long. And I actually launched a supplement line last year. And so I want to make an NMN. 
And it, there's actually, I don't know if you heard, there's a new NMN, like the first FDA approved NMN happened sort of recently. So yeah, so I'm really excited about that because there's just a lot of headaches with FDA stuff. But yeah, I'm very, just very excited about everything. So, so speaking of what are you most excited about now with your, your, I mean, there's just so much work in your book. What's the future of what you're doing right now? Yeah, I think it's kind of twofold. So one hand in developing these measures and developing better and better measures. Another thing that we're working towards doing a lot is actually giving people more dimensionality in their measures. So not just giving someone a single biological age, but actually understanding that different parts of our bodies are probably aging at different rates. And can we actually quantify more dimensions of our aging process and then even understand profiles of aging? So again, I think as I mentioned earlier, some people might be more prone to aging in a certain manner than others. And this might have implications for which diseases they're going to be most at risk for. So that's one feature. And then of course, constantly working on developing more quote accurate measures. Again, there's this issue of how do you actually assess how accurate it is. And then the other thing that we're really excited about is coming back to this reprogramming and not necessarily using just the Yamanaka factors, but just understanding what's actually going on. So what is this rejuvenation event? How does it occur? What drives it? How do these epigenetic changes actually map on to cell function and cell health and then how does that actually impact kind of whole organ and organismal health? The practical implementation of what you were talking about with people aging different ways, is that something practically where people might benefit more from like a dietary intervention versus like sleep or stress or like how does that practically manifest when people know the way they're aging? Yeah, exactly. So we think in the future, you know, especially if there are actually aging interventions that people feel confident about, it might be that certain profiles of people benefit more or less from different interventions. So hypothetically, if you could build a big enough data set, you could actually start to predict to some degree, you know, you might be a person that would benefit from a plant-based diet and you might be a person that, you know, needs a little more of X in your diet or you would be someone that would benefit from a caloric restriction diet. But this would require lots and lots of data with people actually maybe even voluntarily undergoing different interventions. And then it would almost be like algorithms for Spotify or, you know, any of these kind of other applications where they make recommendations because of you look like someone else's profile, you know, that had this similar like. So it'd be biologically, you have a profile like people who tend to benefit from X, Y, or Z. But to actually train those algorithms takes lots and lots of data. But hopefully in the future, it'll actually be possible. Do you have any idea if there's any level of intuition to that? Like, because some people seem to intuitively want to exercise more or, or thrive more on exercise. Some people seem to thrive more. Like for me, I'm not a big, like I don't, crave going to the gym, but I love fasting. And like, I, cause I know some people like, or like calorie restriction, like I feel better in that state. Like, do you think there's any level of intuition to this? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, people undervalue self-rated health, but you know, there obviously we can be a little bit overly subjective, but you can definitely feel 
when you're feeling better in your body, when you have more energy. You know, of course, there's going to be some placebo effect, but I do think there's definitely intuition and we don't know how to decode that intuition, where it's coming from, but, you know, our brains are really smart and they can figure out, oh, when I do this, somehow I think it feels healthier for me. Yeah, not not entirely sure where the intuition comes from, but it's definitely going to be there. Awesome. Well, just speaking to the, the smart brain piece, something else you mentioned in the book that had never occurred to me, but I was thinking about it and really how profound it is, like the ability of us to look at another human and pretty much estimate their chronological age. I mean, that's pretty mind-blowing, you know, because you can't really point to one thing, but we can see somebody and we sort of know how old they are on a chronological scale. So I was just thinking about that. It is pretty amazing that our brains know kind of how to almost decode biological age, at least in terms of how people look. And, you know, there's even carnival-like things based off this, right? You can go to the carnival and, and there's the person who will say, oh, I'll guess your age. And if you don't guess it within some number, you win a prize or something. So yeah, our brains are really intuitive. And you can look at pictures of people and sequentially line them up and know this is when they were younger to you know when they're older. So our brains can, in some ways, decode all of these changes that are happening, at least on the outside with us biologically as we age. Yes. Well, it is so fascinating. And thank you. This has been just such a fascinating conversation. I, I'm just so obsessed with your work and everything that you're doing. And, and thank you. You've been so incredibly generous with your time. Oh, also fight on because I went to USC as well. Not nearly as cool as like, because you got your PhD there. I also did my undergrad there. Actually, my entire family. Yeah. So I did undergrad and PhD there. My sister did her undergrad and her master's there. My husband got his PhD there. My mother worked there and my dad played football. So fight on. I'm a true Trojan at heart. (laughs) And wait, what was your undergrad there? Psychology. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Did you live on campus? I lived on campus for part of it. And then I, I lived off campus for my last two years. So my freshman year, I lived on the row, but I wasn't in a sorority or fraternity, but they had actually... I forget which fraternity it was, but they got kicked out of the house because of some drug-related undertaking. And so they put a bunch of freshmen in one of the fraternity houses, which was a very surreal experience. But yeah, I spent my my first year there. They made a freshman housing on the row. That's so funny. Wow. Yeah, I lived on campus freshman year. Probably wasn't there when it was called Burncrant, right by the quad. I think it was a newer building. Oh, that's a nice place. Yeah, right by Levy Library. The three following years, I lived like near the row, and then I was in the film fraternity, so lived at that house. So, small world. <laughs> well, thank you again so, so much. This was just amazing. And the last question, I promise, that I ask every single guest on this show, and it's just because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? For me, I think I'm grateful for, I actually owe this probably to my husband. I feel like he's really taught me to have more of a growth mindset. He's someone who, even if he doesn't think he'll be successful at something, will try it. And he really likes to be out of his comfort zone. And I used to always be something, someone who I'd only want to work on things or do things that I was knew I would be good at. But I feel like it's really taught me that you can be good at anything or learn anything 
even if you don't think you have the background for it, if you just kind of set your mind to it. So I would say that's probably the thing I'm most grateful for. Oh, I love that. So unique. I love that answer. Well, thank you again, Morgan. This has been so, so amazing. I am eagerly following all of your work. Do you think you'll be writing another book in the future? I don't know. It was quite a bit of work. I'm glad I did it, but I also happened to do it like right. I I got the book deal February, 2020. So I basically spent the pandemic writing it, which I might have a little bit of PTSD from it, but we'll see. You do have a daughter, right? Yes. I wrote a book as well. And I haven't had a child, but I'm like, I feel like this is like giving birth to a baby. It was a lot to go through. It was a lot. Yeah. And I had homeschooling that. (laughs) I am glad I did it. It was a nice way to kind of put everything down. And like you said, yeah, it's like you're finally giving birth and actually put something together to create a whole thing. Well, it's awesome. I have it in front of me right here. And it's beautiful as well. I was just looking at the cover. I can't take credit for that. It looks amazing. I like the colors a ton. So for listeners, we will put links to everything that we talked about in the show notes, which I know was a lot. And there is a full transcript there as well. What links would you like to put out there for people to best follow your work? So people can follow me on either Instagram or Twitter. I think I think it's Dr. Morgan Levine on both of them. Or also look up I have a website for my lab. I think it's morganlevinelab.com if you guys want to see what we're up to. And actually, I recently left Yale and moved to a new company called Altos Labs. So people can also find me on there. Oh, so I, I said the wrong thing at the beginning. Oh, so you're, you're not at Yale. I'm not, but I still have uh, affiliation there. So it's still accurate. Okay. What is the new company that you're at now? It's called Altos Labs, A-L-T-O-S. So it's actually focusing on this kind of reprogramming idea and understanding cell health. Very cool. Well, I will eagerly await all of your future findings. And again, this has been amazing and hopefully we can connect again in the future. Perfect. Thanks for having me, Melanie. Thank you, Morgan. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got it.